Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 59 of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about mind control parasites. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Akin. Hi, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. Before we get to today's show, I want to mention a show that you all might be interested in that Jimmy and I do together that's different from Mysterious World. Uh, We do it along with Father Corey Stika. It's called The Secrets of Star Trek at sqpn.com slash Star Trek. Uh, if you're at all interested in Star Trek, classic Trek, modern Trek, the new stuff, stuff that's still coming out, all of that, we talk about it all. Uh, we talk about uh, episode, one episode at a time, and we have a lot of fun. And if you're at all interested in Star Trek or Trek Trekky things from a Catholic perspective, uh, give it a listen, sqpn.com slash Star Trek. So in 1951, Robert Heinlein released a novel called The Puppet Masters, and it dealt with alien parasites taking control of the minds of their human victims. Since then, mind-controlling parasites have been a staple of science fiction. Star Trek had several of those over the years. Yes, But could something like that happen in the real world? Well, not only can it happen, it does. Mind-control parasites really exist, and sometimes they affect humans. And that's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. So first, Jimmy, this is a patron selection episode, right? Yes. Yeah, we as every month we gave our patrons a choice of what they'd like to hear about. And this month they said they want to hear about mind control parasites. (laughs) All right. Thank you, patrons, because this is going to be interesting. So I I understand that we want to start this episode with a small note of caution. What is that? Well, some of the things in this episode may be a little gross, but as usual, we'll be keeping it clinical and we won't be focusing on the gory details. So it should be okay. But, you know, if you're a little squeamish, just remember you asked to hear about this. (laughs) All right. I also understand that you wanted to start by mentioning a joke you sometimes tell. What is that? Yeah. So I personally am of the philosophy that if you're sick, stay home. Do not spread your germs around to other people. And I have will sometimes encounter people who, you know, they've got a cold or something and they're out in public or at work and they say, oh, I'm not infectious when they're sneezing their head off. And it's <laughs> like, OK, yes, you are. It's just a question of how much. Uh, but what I will frequently say when they say, oh, I'm not infectious, I will say the germs make you say that. <laughs> That's right. And it comes across as a joke. But for reasons we'll see. It's really not. Ooh, interesting. All right. So let's start with a basic concept. What is a parasite? Parasites are creatures that practice a special kind of symbiosis. A symbiosis is a, it's based on Greek roots that mean living together. So symbionts are organisms that live together. Uh, there are several types of symbiosis. One way of classifying them is based on the physical relationship between the symbionts, the life forms that live together. A major type is known as disjunctive symbiosis. Uh, This is when there is not a physical connection between the two organisms living together. For example, uh, humans and all of the animals and plants that we've domesticated 
are disjunctive symbionts. So when you're talking to your dog, you can say, who's a good disjunctive symbiont? <laughs> and uh, in view of how many things we've domesticated, humans are like super symbionts. There is nothing else on Earth like us. So we, we're just symbiotic like crazy with other life forms. The other major type is what's called conjunctive symbiosis. And this is when there is a physical connection between the two organisms that live together. If one organism lives on the outside of the other, it's called ectosymbiosis uh, from the Greek word ecto, meaning outside or external. For example, the head lice that children get uh, sometimes are ectosymbionts because they live on the outside of the child on the scalp. On the other hand, if one organism lives inside another, it's called endosymbiosis from endo in Greek means inside. And an example of endosymbionts would be like the bacteria that live in our intestines and help us digest food. Those are endosymbionts for humans. Another way of classifying symbiosis is based on the mutual harm or benefit that the symbionts experience. For example, if both of the symbionts on balance benefit from the relationship, then it's a form of symbiosis called mutualism because they get mutual benefit. Oftentimes, mutualist symbionts are often are just called symbionts. People leave out the mutualist part, but technically mutualists are just one type of symbionts. An example would be uh, humans and dogs. Dogs help humans by doing things like helping us hunt, hurting our livestock, alerting us to danger, protecting us, and giving us companionship. On the other hand, humans help dogs by giving them food, protecting them, and giving them companionship. So both organisms benefit from this relationship. So when you're talking to your dog, you can say, who's a good disjunctive mutualist symbiont? <laughs> On the other hand, if one organism, there, there are other types of symbiosis, if one organism benefits from the relationship and the other isn't really hurt by it, then it's a form of symbiosis called commensalism. Commensal symbionts are often called commensals. For example, the pilot fish that travel with sharks eat the shark's leftovers, so they benefit, but they don't really hurt the shark. So they would be commensal symbionts. Also, early the early wolves that evolved into dogs likely started by eating scraps from human refuse heaps. So they benefited from us. They'd hang around our garbage dumps and get some food, but they didn't really hurt us. And eventually, because they got used to hanging around humans, they developed and became dogs and became full-on mutualists. So the difference between mutualists and commensalism is commensalists, they don't harm, and but the other side is, is neither harmed nor helped. Basically, yeah, Basically. on balance, neither harm nor help. So one okay. side in this always benefits. Other, uh, otherwise, it, they wouldn't be living together. Someone's right. getting some benefit. It's a question okay. of does the other party benefit, in which case it's mutualism. Does the other party not really benefit but also doesn't really get hurt, in which case it's commensalism. Or does the other party get hurt, in which case it's a form of symbiosis called parasitism. Parasite is thus a life form that lives closely with another one and hurts it. Examples include mosquitoes and ticks that suck our blood. Uh, they don't help us and they can transmit disease to us and cause other health problems. 
There are a lot of types of parasites. They include animals like mosquitoes and vampire bats, plants like mistletoe that, you know, lives on trees, fungi like candida, which can cause a variety of infections in humans, protozoa like the one that causes malaria, bacteria like anthrax, and viruses like the common cold or the rhinovirus. And there, there are other ways of classifying symbionts, but we'll keep it simple and stick to these. And to be clear, mistletoe is not a parasite on humans. It's on not trees. On, you're right. Not on humans, but on trees. <laughs> it, is poisonous. it is poisonous for humans, though. Right. So you may want to kiss under it, but don't eat it. <laughs> so don't worry about decorating your home with it at Christmas. It's not going to be a parasite on you. <laughs> yeah. Okay. In this episode, we're going to be specifically interested in mind-controlling parasites. So how do we define them? Many parasites alter the behavior of their hosts in one way or another, but sometimes that behavior alteration doesn't involve the brain. For example, in the Sudan, there's a parasite called a guinea worm, and it gets inside the muscles of its host's leg, but where it lives, but then it needs to give birth in water. So what it does is when it's ready to give birth, it causes a burning sensation to get the host to dip its leg in water to relieve the burning sensation. And that's when it gives birth. Uh, we won't say anything more about that because it's pretty gross, but it is an <laughs> illustration of how a parasite can directly influence the behavior of the host without affecting the brain directly. Other times, though, the parasite affects the host's brain. That's what alters the behavior. And so to one extent or another, it's controlling the host's mind. And that's the kind of parasite we're going to be talking about, ones that have an effect on behavior apparently via the brain. So what's an example of one of these parasites? One uh, famous one is called the lancet liver fluke. It's a kind of parasitic flatworm. And it, fortunately, this one does not affect humans. It starts life in a farm animal like a cow or a sheep that eats grass. The liver flukes are conceived as eggs in the farm animal, which is its first host. And then the animal poops out its eggs, which lie on the grass as part of its manure. Snails then come along and eat the manure. Snails are the second host. The larvae of the liver fluke use the snails as a new host and then the snail excretes the larva as part of its slime. Then another host comes along, ants. Ants eat the slime with the liver fluke larva inside it. The liver flukes, though, need to get back into a farm animal, but farm animals eat grass. They don't eat ants. So what's the liver fluke supposed to do? How's it supposed to get from the ant back into its original host, a farm animal like a sheep or a cow? Well, this is where the mind control comes in. There are liver fluke, there's, there will be several liver fluke larvae in an ant, and one of them will go to the ant's brain and take partial control of it. During the day, the ant will go about its normal business serving the nest of other ants, but at night, the larva that's made its way to the brain takes control and makes the ant walk to the top of a blade of grass and bite down on the grass and hang on. And it just sits there all night. And if it doesn't get eaten, then when the sun gets hot, the larva stops controlling it and lets it go about its business during the day. So it gets off, gets out of the sunlight. It's not up there on the blade of grass where it could get fried by the heat. But then at night again, 
it takes control of the ant and makes it go back to the top of the blade of grass and bite down and just sit there all night. Eventually, typically in the cool early morning hours, a farm animal will then eat the grass along with the ant and the liver fluke larva then go to the farm animal's liver where they can mature into adults and lay new eggs and the cycle starts all over again. So this is kind of like if a human being, you know, went to his day job every day and then at night suddenly went up on the top of a building and stood there all night and then went about his day job during the day again. But at night, he goes right back up to the top of that building and stands there all night. That's like an episode of Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah. It also <laughs> or means something. I, yeah. if, if beef liver weren't already gross, I would not eat it now. <laughs> <laughs> cooking right. kills the liver flukes <laughs> yes yes uh, also they, they don't hurt the cows it's the ants that are that get hurt so are, do any other worms do similar things as the uh, lancet liver fluke some species of horsehair worms do essentially the same things but with only one host instead of three these are very thin worms but they can grow up to about six inches long they start life as eggs in a body of water usually along the edge like the edge of a pond Crickets or grasshoppers then eat the eggs and become their first and only host. The eggs mature into worms inside the cricket or the grasshopper, but they need to get back to the water to complete their life cycle. So they take control of the host's brain and they get it to jump into the body of water where it will drown. In the case of the crickets, which normally like darkness, they do this by getting the cricket to be attracted to light. So you know how crickets, you know, you hear them in your house at night, but not during the day usually? It's because they're active at night. Well, what happens is under the influence of the worm, the cricket becomes attracted to light so that it leaps towards moonlight reflecting off the body of water. And that's how it gets into the water. The worm then exits the drowning host. If the cricket or grasshopper gets eaten by a frog or a fish, the worm will then exit the frog or the fish, either by its mouth, nostrils, or gills. Uh, the worms find each other in the water and mate, laying new eggs and completing their life cycle. So what's your favorite example of a parasite that induces a behavior to get its host eaten? That would be Leucochloridium paradoxum, also <laughs> known as the green-banded brood sac. It's a kind of flatworm that begins life in a bird, which is its first host. The flatworm's eggs come out in the bird's droppings where they get eaten by snails. Here come the snails again. This time, once in the snails, the larval form of Leucochloridium paradoxum colonizes the snake's eye stalks. The snail's eye stalks. The snails, I'm sorry. Yes, the snail's eye stalks. And for some reason, they especially like the left eye stalk. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Interesting. They cause the eye stalks to swell up with green bands. That's why they're called the green banded brood sac. In the presence of light, they also cause the eye stalk to pulsate, which makes it look like a caterpillar that's wiggling. And if you want to see one of these, we're using them in uh, the the episode art for this episode. Yeah. This, uh, that's a picture of Leucochloridium paradoxum. They also cause the snail to be attracted to light, which causes it to climb up vegetation, exposing itself to the air. Birds then look down and see the eye stalk pulsating and think it's a caterpillar that's wriggling on a leaf. So the bird comes down and pecks at the eye stalk. The larvae then get back into the bird where they complete their life cycle. Note that this 
unlike the ant case or the cricket case, this doesn't automatically kill the snail. The snail's eye stalks can regenerate, which only means it can be reinfected again. <laughs> Man, this is like it's, it's super evil. <laughs> yeah, it well, it gets, it's going to get more evil. <laughs> <laughs> All right. In the cases we've mentioned, it's the larval form of the parasite that does the mind control. Are there cases where the adult form does it? Yes. For example, the jewel wasp, also known as the emerald cockroach wasp. As its name suggests, it's a parasite for cockroaches. We should also note that the cockroaches are quite a bit larger than the wasp, so it, the wasp cannot manhandle them on their own. They're more powerful physically than the wasp. What happens is when the wasp is ready to lay its eggs, it finds a cockroach and stings it twice. The first sting induces a form of temporary paralysis in the front part of the cockroach so it can't fight off the wasp. The wasp then stings a specific part of the cockroach's head that kills a specific part of the cockroach's brain. So first it disables the cockroach, then it goes for the brain. After the paralysis of the first sting wears off, the cockroach, now partially brain dead, so it's a zombie now, cleans itself off. This is apparently due to the wasp injecting it in part with dopamine a neurotransmitter that triggers grooming behavior in mice and apparently cockroaches as well. The reason the cockroach grooms itself is apparently to make it a good place for the wasp's eggs. The second sting kills the cockroach's part of the brain involved in decision-making, and that makes the cockroach unable to decide things, and so it's easy to lead around. And it just goes willingly. So the wasp also bites off part of the cockroach's antenna and then leads it around by the stub of the antenna like a leash. Even though the roach is much larger, the, the wasp then leads the roach to a burrow where it lays its eggs on the roach and buries it alive. And that's to keep the roach's flesh fresh for the baby wasps. The roach then just can't decide anything, so it just sits in the burrow waiting for the larva to hatch and eat it alive. <laughs> hence, hence our earlier warning about uh, gross. <laughs> yeah. So we've been looking at situations where the mind control involves the host organism being eaten by a predator. Are there other are there cases where some other behavior is the goal of the mind control? Yeah, sometimes the parasite will turn the host into a bodyguard for its young. So it's not actually trying to kill the parasite. It's not actually trying to kill the host or, you know, get the host eaten, but it does want a bodyguard. For example, there is another kind of wasp called a Dinocampus cochinella uh, that lays its egg in a ladybug. And when the egg hatches, it gets out of the ladybug and makes a cocoon in which it develops. The ladybug is stuck to this cocoon and partially paralyzed, but it twitches while it's attached to the cocoon, and that helps keep predators away. Interestingly, about a quarter of the ladybugs survive this and then go on leading their ladybug lives. There's also a kind of shellless barnacle, so it's a barnacle, but it doesn't have a shell, known as a saculina, and it does a similar thing with crabs. The barnacle will get inside the crab's shell, sterilize it, and replace its reproductive system with the barnacle's reproductive system. It will even make hormonal changes in a male crab so that they begin to resemble a female crab. It likes female crabs. 
the crab then becomes a walking incubator for the barnacle's offspring. So a bodyguard. So thus far, we've been considering cases that involve organisms with relatively simple brains, like insects, ants and crickets and cockroaches, or snails. Are there examples where the brain of a more advanced creature, like a mammal, such as a mouse or rat, is affected? Yeah, there is a single-celled parasite called Toxoplasma gondii that affects rats. Toxoplasma gondii can only breed inside of a cat, so it needs to get its rat host into a cat. <laughs> and uh, the way it does that is by causing the rat to lose its natural fear of cats. In some cases, the rats even seem attracted to cats possibly to cat urine. And with the rats hanging out in areas where cats are present, they naturally get eaten and the parasite gets back to where it wants to breed. So it is possible for parasites to affect the brains of animals with, you know, complex mammalian brains, not just simple insect or snail ones. So let's consider the theories. What theories are there about mind-controlling parasites? It's clear that they're a real phenomenon, and we've only begun studying them in recent decades. We've discovered hundreds, but there are probably thousands. In view of this, mind-controlling parasites seem to play a much more important role in nature than anybody previously realized. Uh, for example, it's often thought that when, group, when animal groups uh, get together, like in herds or swarms, it's because the animals are choosing to do so, like they want to be together in herds or swarms. But there's a kind of tapeworm that affects brine, that infects brine shrimp, and it turns the shrimp pink, which makes them easy to spot. And then it herds them together in a group so they can be eaten by flamingos. Sometimes, therefore, it may be the parasites that are herding the animals together so they can get eaten, not because the animals naturally herd together. It may be the parasites doing that. The real question is the extent to which mind-controlling parasites have an effect on humans, and it may be more than previously thought. Hmm, interesting. Okay, so those are the theories. Before we look at the, what the reason perspective says about these theories, what can we say about mind control parasites from the faith perspective? I mean, is there anything? There is a good bit, actually. God obviously allows mind control parasites to exist, and they, like all parasites, do harm to certain creatures, which makes parasitism a subcase of the problem of evil. This is something that theologians have thought about and philosophers have thought about for millennia. In 1986, John Paul II gave a general audience in which he addressed why physical evils like death are part of God's plan. And he said, this was on uh, his general audience of June 4th from 1986. He said, certain forms of physical evil belong to the very structure of created beings, which by their nature are contingent and passing and therefore corruptible. Besides, we know that material beings are in a close relationship of interdependence, as expressed by the old saying, the death of one is the life of another. So then, in a certain sense, death serves life. So we humans tend to think of parasites as, you know, creepy since we're their potential victims. But this really isn't different than what we see elsewhere in nature. The parasites are just doing what they need to in order to survive. I mean, for example, a bacterium doing what it needs to with a host to survive and breed isn't really different in principle than a lion eating a zebra. 
or a human. You know, humans are also potential victims of lions. It's just that we like the lions better than the bacteria in part because they're fellow mammals. They're more like us. If we were parasites, we'd like other parasites. Um, so, you know, life forms tend to have affinity for similar life forms. Ultimately, God uses even physical evils to produce greater goods, which is another part of this equation. Paragraph 310 of the Catechism of the Catholic Church discusses that. It says, With infinite wisdom and goodness, God freely willed to create a world, quote, in a state of journeying, end quote, towards its ultimate, ultimate perfection. In God's plan, this process of becoming involves the appearance of certain beings and the disappearance of others, the existence of the more perfect alongside the less perfect, both constructive and destructive forces of nature. With physical good, there exists also physical evil as long as creation has not reached perfection. So from a faith perspective, we can be confident that God is using the constructive and destructive forces in the world, including parasites, to accomplish good, even if in this life we don't have a full picture of how that works. This is Dom Bettinelli of the StarQuest Production Network, and we need your help. Over the past year, we've grown by leaps and bounds. Some of our podcasts, like Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World, are among the most popular shows we've ever produced. But that success is in danger. Creating a dozen shows has caused our expenses to rise, and right now we aren't making ends meet. We must reach the financial break-even point if we're going to continue. If our reserves are depleted, we'll have to cut back many of our shows. We might have to shut down entirely. That's why it's crucial we hear from you right now. Right now, please go to sqpn.com slash give and click the Become a Patron button to make your monthly pledge. If you're already a supporter, please consider increasing your pledge. The need is urgent, so please go to sqpn.com slash give. That's sqpn.com slash give. That's the faith perspective. What can we say about this from the reason perspective? Are there parasites that may have an effect on the human mind? Yes. One possibility is Toxoplasma gondii, the virus that gets rats to lose their fear of cats. We can also be infected by it, hmm. and current research indicates it may have an effect on the human mind in some cases. Among the effects that have been proposed are schizophrenia, although hmm. that's, dis that's disputed, bipolar disorder, cognitive deficits, and risk of suicide. Just like it makes rats lose some of their native caution regarding cats, it may make humans less risk-averse, leading to more impulsivity, which could, for example, increase traffic accident risk or make people more aggressive if they're less risk-averse. It may also have a different impact on the sexes. According to a 2000 study, which is cited on Wikipedia, men were more likely to disregard rules and were more expedient, suspicious, and jealous. On the other hand, women were more warm-hearted, outgoing, conscientious, and moralistic. Close quote. Similarly, another beneficial effect, just like the women were with this, with this parasite seemed to have some benefits from it, another potential benefit may be that infected people are more likely to go into management and business and start their own businesses. You know, a consequence <laughs> of being less risk of risk averse is being more entrepreneurial. But here's the scary thing. Because of how commonly people keep cats, 
30 to 50 percent of the global human population has been exposed to Toxoplasma gondii and may be infected. This percentage is higher in some countries than others, but anywhere there's cats, if you grew up with cats, for example, you may have Toxoplasma gondii. But there are some reasons not to freak out about this. One is that many of the proposed claims about its effect on humans are disputed. And also, there are just correlations between Toxoplasma gondii infection and these behaviors. And as the saying goes, correlation is not causation. Uh, the correlations could be due to other things. For example, maybe people who like cats tend to be a little less risk-averse, or maybe they tend to be a little more neurotic. And so there's no actual causal effect here. It's just association for other reasons. And whatever, whatever effects there may be in humans from Toxoplasma gondii, they're not huge. They're marginal. It's not like every cat owner is profoundly impacted. Uh, if there were big downsides to owning a cat, it would be obvious and they wouldn't be the super popular pets they are. Of course, there's always the crazy, crazy cat lady uh, trope. <laughs> stereotype. There, there is, but that's that's probably correlation without causation. <laughs> OK, OK. Uh, all right. So can you give another example of where a parasite influences human behavior? Yeah, and it's one of the most common, the influenza virus or the flu. Uh, you'll remember at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned my joke that the germs make you say that when you, you say you're not in, you're not contagious. Well, it's not really a joke. And here's why. In her book, This Is Your Brain on Parasites, which is an outstanding read on this topic, science reporter Kathleen McAuliffe describes a study involve, involving two scientists in Binghamton, New York. They were named Reber and Moore. They were considering the hypothesis that germs influence human behavior, but they were confronting the fact that it's considered unethical, you know, to like deliberately infect humans in most situations. Mm. But they found a way to test the hypothesis anyway. Dom, can you read us what happened? Then Moore got an inspiration. Quote, doctors give people the flu all the time, she said. By that, she meant they gave them flu vaccines, which contained all the same molecules found in the live virus, except for its dangerous infectious component. Moore hypothesized that the inactivated flu virus in the vaccine would induce the same behavioral changes in its human hosts as its untamed twin did. Tracking people's social habits before and after receiving the vaccine, they both agreed, might be a relatively easy and ethical way to show that parasites manipulate humans, overcoming a major criticism, the oft-repeated charge that correlation does not establish causation. After Moore returned home, the two scientists began exploring in earnest how they might conduct the trial. Delving into the medical literature, they discovered that the flu virus is most transmissible in the two to three days after a person's exposure to it, but prior to the onset of symptoms. Indeed, viral shedding peaked during that narrow window of time. Put another way, if you go to a party and wake up the next morning with a sore throat and runny nose, don't assume the people you hugged or shook hands with the night before gave you the bug. Quite likely, just the opposite happened. You gave it to them. Once you begin coughing and blowing your nose, you'll probably take to your bed and lie low, providing the pathogen with fewer chances to meet new people. By then, your immune system will have kicked into high gear, squelching the virus's ambition. 
Putting this all together, Moore and Reber predicted that the germ would prod people to seek out the company of others early in the infection, before it had blown its cover and triggered a counterattack by defense cells. Once they'd formulated a hypothesis, they decided it would be best to conduct a pilot trial to see if the idea had any merit. The researchers tracked the social interactions of 36 people, none of whom knew the purpose of the study, before and after they got flu shots at a health clinic on the Bingham, Binghamton, New York campus. The change in the subject's behavior was huge, so notable that its magnitude surprised even Reber and Moore. In the first three days after vaccination, coinciding with the time when the virus was most contagious, subjects interacted with twice as many people as they had before being inoculated. Quote, people who had very limited or simple social lives were suddenly deciding that they needed to go out to bars or parties or invite a bunch of people over, reported Reber. This happened with lots of our subjects. It wasn't just one or two oddities. Yeah, and bear in mind, this was a small-scale study, so it doesn't provide proof, but it is suggestive. The germs that you've gotten want you to go out and infect other people. That's part of their survival strategy. And it looks like the flu is influencing human behavior to make them more sociable at the very time they're most infectious. Right. So while sometimes people die from the flu, most people recover. Are there any diseases that affect human behavior that are much more serious? One of them may be HIV, human immunodeficiency virus, the virus that causes AIDS. Uh, in fact, it was a discussion of HIV's potential effects on human behavior that led Moore and Reber to conduct the study regarding the flu. According to McAuliffe, Hearing Moore's studies about parasitic manipulators in nature immediately made Reber think of sexually transmitted diseases in people. Before coming to Binghamton, she'd had a job at a neuropsychiatric institute at UCLA that worked closely with nearby clinics treating patients with HIV. Quote, the clinic directors used to tell me that HIV-positive patients go through these terrible end-stage phases where they had intense cravings for sex, Reber told me. There, these were anecdotal reports and not well documented, but she'd started to wonder if they might have a basis in fact, because when she attended scientific conferences, other health professionals shared similar stories. Maybe, she suggested to Moore, these urges, if true, were the virus's attempt to spread before the host's imminent death. Yeah. So it's like if you're the virus, this is your last chance to spread before the host dies. And so go out and do what you need to to get spread. But as they note, this is just anecdotal at this point. And unlike giving people a flu shot, you cannot give people AIDS ethically. Right. So, you know, um, it's a hard, harder to verify this one. But the flu parallel suggests that that could be what's happening in these cases. I mean, they could be measuring uh, the increase in testosterone or other hormones in people who are already sick and dying from the diseases right. and that sort of thing. It, so. it could be. It also could be that the HIV virus changes the hormones in a way that produces the effect. Right. Or it, or it could be something else. It could be psychology. Right. That's, you know, if you're about to die, you know, and if you're really suffering, you might want to get whatever comfort you can physically before you die. Uh, so the, the influenza and HIV virus ha viruses haven't been thoroughly studied for their effects on human behavior. Are there other parasites where the influence is clear? One of them is rabies. Mm. Uh, this one is undeniable. It unmistakably affects human behavior. It causes inflammation of the brain uh, that 
itself causes a variety of cognitive symptoms, including anxiety, confusion, paranoia, hallucinations, delirium, and hydrophobia, the fear of water, which is actually the ancient name for rabies, hydrophobia. The good news is that like all really deadly, really serious infections, rabies tends to be rare, but it unmistakably affects human behavior. Oh, no, old yeller. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, trauma as a child. Let's look at the positive side of things. What general defenses do we have against parasites? We've got a really powerful immune system that you know helps us protect ourselves against parasites. One of the consequences of this is that, or appears to be, that we have two sexes, male and female. There are two possible ways that life forms can reproduce, here on Earth anyway. Uh, those are cloning and sex. And higher life forms tend to use sex. If you're a bacterium, you may use mitosis to clone yourself and just split in two. But higher life forms tend to use sex. The reason isn't entirely clear, but the leading hypothesis is that the two sexes gives us better immune systems. Since we have genes from both of our parents, if a parasite capable of defeating one of our parents' immune systems is around, it's not as likely to defeat ours since half of our genes are different. And so that the fact we combine genes from more than one parent means we're not as vulnerable as one of our parents would be to a particular parasite. This leads to what's known as the Red Queen hypothesis in biology. The name is taken from the Red Queen in Alice Through the Looking Glass. In the, in the children's book, the Red Queen tells Alice that it takes all the running you can do to keep in the same place. You have this paradoxical thing where you're running as fast as you can, but you're not getting anywhere. And according to the Red Queen hypothesis in biology, parasites and their hosts are constantly evolving to best each other. Uh, they're both like running in place as fast as they can. And but because the if you're a human, you, you know, you're evolving through the generations to get better at defeating parasites. But the parasites are also evolving to get better at defeating your immune system. So having the two sexes helps out with that. And uh, that may be one of the reasons we have the nice, robust immune systems to help protect us from parasites. We also have built in reflexes to help protect us from parasites. One of them is we find them gross. Mm -hmm. So that tends to protect us from parasites. If you have a disgust reaction, then um, you're going to avoid this, the potential danger. Another is the sick response. When we're infected, our bodies ratchet up our temperatures. That's why we get a fever. And that kills the parasites by cooking them hmm. because they can survive only in certain temperature ranges in the hosts. To, of course, to ratchet up our temperature requires lots of energy. And that's why we get lethargic and want to stay in bed when we have a fever. We also have the sleep reflex. And the reason why we sleep is also mysterious. But one of the theories is that we sleep every day in part to free up energy for our immune system, like a mini version on a daily basis of the sick response. Hmm. We also have sneezing which gets us to expel infectious agents through our respiratory system. And we have nausea and diarrhea to get us to expel infectious agents from our gastrointestinal system. 
So all of these, you know, uh, kind of unpleasant, sick related things are actually ways that we defeat the parasites. So it's actually kind of a good thing. I, uh, you know, sometimes people will get like um, uh, pus and stuff. Yeah. Uh, Like if you have strep throat, you may have some pus going down the back of your throat. And some years ago, I had strep throat and I could see, you know, the back of my throat had that in the mirror. And I'm going, you little white cells have not died in vain. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's their function is to, Mm -hmm. to kill the parasite and make me better. We also have physical adaptations to fight parasites. The biggest one is our skin. That's why mm-hmm. we have it. It keeps stuff out. We also have stomach acid, which can, if something gets down our gullet, the stomach acid is likely to kill it. In our brains, we have what's known as the blood-brain barrier to keep things from infecting our neural tissue. And we also have the big, powerful brain itself, which makes us smart enough that it lets us avoid many parasites and it lets us develop medicine to fight them when they are avoided. So we've got a bunch of uh, different defenses just in our own body that are part of us. But then we have billions of friendly microorganisms, both on and inside our bodies. These are uh, called our personal microbiomes. And they, unlike the, they're, they're mutualists. They are on our side. They want us to survive because it helps them and helps them survive. And so our mutualist microbiome bacteria helps us also fight parasites. So they're 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 doing their part for our good, too. So our defense against parasites in general is good. Then, But do we have defenses against specifically and this is very important, specifically mind controlling parasites? Yeah, the fact that we have large, complex brains makes them harder to control. We're not like ants or crickets or cockroaches or snails. Therefore, whatever influence parasites may have on our brains is going to be lesser. We're not going to be subject to the same dramatic changes in behavior that an ant might be. Also, we're fortunate in that we're apex predators. We're at the top of the food chain. There are no larger predators that are evolved to eat us. We are not prey animals. Not, I mean, there may be an occasional human that gets eaten by a lion or something. Right. But humans are not we're natively. Nobody's, yeah. We're nobody's natural prey. Right. And in fact, uh, since we're carnivores, we have carnivore membership club privileges. Carnivores tend not to eat each other mm-hmm. usually because carnivores can fight back. And so so carnivores are not evolved to eat each other. They're evolved to eat herbivores. So unlike mice and rats that have cats as their natural predator, we don't have one. And so no parasite would evolve to make humans go present ourselves to some higher natural predator. That's why you don't have the guy who does his day job and then goes and stands on the top of a building (laughs) at night every night waiting for some higher predator to eat him because there is no higher predator for humans. Uh, Are there any other words of comfort you can give us about mind-controlling parasites? Yeah, like other diseases, the worse a mind-controlling parasite is, the less common it is. Like, look at diseases. The common cold, which is not very harmful, is very common. But Ebola, which is extremely harmful, is rare. 
Uh, this is a known phenomenon because the really destructive things tend to kill their hosts before they can spread, and that limits the number of people who get them. Uh, so Toxoplasma gondii may be very common, but its effects on humans are mild and so mild that they're even still debated. Whereas the really destructive things like rabies are rare. And then also, as we said, we've got lots of our own beneficial symbionts in the world, including many of the organisms in our own personal microbes, in our own personal microbiomes, and they're fighting for us. So we've got reason to not freak out about mind control parasites. Friendly bacteria. Yay. (laughs) All right, Jimmy, what's our bottom line on mind controlling parasites? So mind control parasites, like other parasites, are creepy. Mm -hmm. But the good news is that we don't have to be that frightened of them. We have good defenses and the really dangerous ones are rare. So, Jimmy, what are further resources for anyone who's brave enough to want to find out more? Well, one of them is Kathleen McAuliffe's book, This Is Your Brain on Parasites. It's a really great read. And it's it even though parasites is kind of the driving theme of the book, she gets into a lot of really interesting areas. And 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 it's it's not just one gross story after another. She also tells the story of like our personal microbiomes and various ways that we have of defeating parasites, including why pregnant women often want to eat dirt. Yes. There yep. is a real biological reason for that that helps people defeat parasites. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and kids, little kids. And like kids, kids yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll also have links to Wikipedia's articles on symbiosis and behavior altering parasites, as well as the lancet liver fluke that goes after ants, the horsehair worm that goes after crickets, leucochloridium paradoxum, which goes after snails. We'll also have a video or actually it's a a, a GIF, I guess, of the snail's eye stalks pulsing. Cool. So you can look at that. <laughs> uh, we'll have a link to Wikipedia's article on the jeweled wasp that goes after cockroaches, on Toxoplasma gondii that goes after rats, and on Dinocampus coccinelle that goes after ladybugs, and on the Saculina barnacles that go after crabs. We'll also have links to uh, rabies and the Red Queen hypothesis. Excellent. Very interesting. Thank you, Jimmy, on that. That was very good. Uh, it was a fascinating topic. And uh, you, sometimes we, you hear the topic title and you go, how can that be an interesting mystery? And of course, always, there's always something interesting in this world uh, to, when you dig deep into it. That's, that's well, so great. And, and thank you. I wouldn't, I wouldn't propose a topic if I didn't think we could get a good mystery out of it. <laughs> yeah. So always, even folks, I have to say that always when you see a topic listed and you say, I don't know if you should. Give it a little listen and see if you get pulled in, because I guarantee you, I hear all the time from people who say, oh, I wasn't sure I'd like that one. It was amazing. So give it, give, give every episode a chance. That's why I'm just going to say that. All right. So this week we have some uh, mysterious feedback, as we always do. And our, this time we're talking about our Bohemian Grove episode. And our first feedback comes from Bean Boy on YouTube, who says, feel like you're missing a lot on this subject. You have to know a lot about Freemasonry slash Cabal slash Illuminati conspiracy to take a look at the Bohemian Grove. Otherwise, it's like checking a heavy plot movie right at the end. You don't get the full picture. Also, the owl is a sign of Freemasons and Luciferians. So um, I appreciate that, Bean Boy. And actually, I have studied a good bit about Freemasonry and the Illuminati, and we will be doing future episodes on them. It's a matter of, of discernment and how one reads the evidence. I am very open to the idea that there are sinister conspiracies. 
Um, but I don't think that when there are sinister conspiracies, if they're a real threat, they don't advertise themselves. And right. Bohemian Grove advertises itself way too much to be an effective sinister conspiracy. So either they're really bad at being a sinister conspiracy or they're not a sinister conspiracy. They're just a bunch of guys who are engaging in some immature and sometimes illegal behavior. But that doesn't make them evil world dominators. Also on the owl, I mean, it's such a common owls, thing. Yeah, I mean, this is symbol of the goddess Minerva. I mean, the owls are yeah. common in all kinds of iconography. In, com- in company logos and, you know, yeah. um, Hooters is, is a, it's a part of the Freemasons. Oh, the bar, and, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. All right, so uh, Joey I was Diker. thinking of owls as symbols of wisdom, but yeah, okay, also there is Hooters. <laughs> yes, and, and also all ki- I was thinking of all kinds of things use the owl as their logo or in their symbolism, so... Um, Joey Diker on YouTube writes, uh, the lakeside chats sound like TED Talks. Yeah. So the if you didn't hear that episode yet, and go back and check it out. At Bohemian Grove in the afternoons, they have these guys who are experts on some field give a chat by a lake. So they're called lakeside chats. And they really do sound a lot like TED Talks. Maybe just something Here's something informative yeah. to give you a background on this thing. It's a short talk by an expert. It might be the origin of TED Talks, frankly. The inspired- yeah, it could be. Uh, Dave Arcudi on YouTube writes, rich dudes getting drunk. I don't, I don't see a threat to freedom. <laughs> yeah, I don't see a big one either. This is, this is guys going out in the woods and deliberately making themselves less effective. Yes. Yes. Uh, Jim on Facebook writes, man, I was hoping for something tantalizing and world dominating. Finding out it is just a glorified frat party is just bum me out. Yeah. Well, don't worry. There are, uh, there are more effective uh, groups that are up to no good, uh, and we'll talk about them too. <laughs> Kathy on Facebook writes, interesting, men blowing off steam versus people who can't stand not knowing and not being allowed to attend. And that's that's really what drives the Bohemian Grove conspiracy theories. It's the fact that people are not allowed to attend unless you're a member of this highly exclusive club. If they let all kinds of people in, people would go, oh, it's Burning Man in the Woods. Big deal. Yeah. Uh, Flying Car 100 on YouTube asks, is there much overlap between Bohemian Grove members and Bilderberg Group members? Yeah, we all, and we also did an episode on Bilderbergers, so if you want to hear that, you can. And there is a significant amount of overlap between the two groups. Like Henry Kissinger is a member of both and goes to both. The difference is partial, though, because most members of Bohemian Grove are American, whereas Bilderberg is a transatlantic alliance that has members from both sides of the pond. Also, most Bohemian Grovers are conservative. They tend to be Republicans, whereas Bilderberg, by definition, is bipartisan that wants to draw people from the left and the right so they can talk together. Did we ever talk about in the Bilderberg episode whether it's known for being sort of a party atmosphere? Bilderberg has an element of party to it, but the party tends to be more like fancy dinners and golf. Okay. Not uh, drunk, rich dudes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I mean, maybe uh, some of them have a little too much wine or too many beers on the golf course, but it's not the same kind of atmosphere as uh, as uh, Bohemian Grove. And we have some feedback from listener Jim, some audio feedback. So let's listen to that now. Hi, Jimmy and Dom. My name is Jim. I live in Michigan in the United States, and I just got done listening to the Knights Templar episode, and that episode sparked me to do a couple things. Uh, First of all, I just finally became a supporter on Patreon. I thought it was about time. 
Also, it sparked me to finally do this audio uh, feedback so I could thank you both for a few things. First of all, I want to thank you for your graciousness and how you handle these topics. I go to Protestant church, but just your graciousness and how you handle things allows someone like me to re-explore the Catholic faith. I also want to thank you for the range of topics and the quality of the program that you, you put out. Um, it, it keeps getting better and better. And lastly, I want to thank you for that look on my wife's face as I make her listen to this podcast uh, while we're on long drives as you are talking about things such as aliens becoming Christian. I love that nerdy stuff. I just want to throw out a challenge. If you like this podcast, uh, please support them, especially with Jimmy's message last week uh, about their financial need. seems that we who are faithful listeners should support it. And that includes you, uh, Brother Randy, since you got me listening to this. Challenge you. Become a patron. Thanks so much for your podcast, Jimmy and Don. Look forward to hearing many more episodes. God bless. And thank you very much, Jim. We really appreciate your support and uh, that you're finding the program enlightening. And we appreciate the challenge to other listeners to also become patrons. We do need your support at this time if we're going to get to break even. So thank you very much. Uh, so, Jimmy, what do we have for mysterious headlines this week? Well, I'm sure people have heard about the Storm Area 51 movement. That was never really meant seriously, but it got so popular, the organizers of it now have rechristened it as Alien Stock. They're doing <laughs> like Woodstock. It's now the Alien Stock Festival. So you have all these people who are supposed to descend on the tiny town of Rachel, Nevada, which is the nearest one to Area 51, and have a big party. And the inhabitants of Rachel are not happy about this. <laughs> Their town is not scaled up for a big party. They All have right. like no grocery store and no they have like one little hotel, the little alien that is already <laughs> booked. And so they're, they Rachel has been putting out warnings saying, if you come here, prepare to be entirely on your own for shelter and food and things like that, you're going to have to rough it camping out because we are, do not have facilities for you. Oh, wow. OK. And then uh, what else do we have? Oh, also a, uh, a post about a giant penguin that has been discovered. It's uh, the archaeological remains of one. It lived down in New Zealand you know, near Antarctica, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it lived just after the dinosaurs, and it got up to like five feet tall. Wow. And so it's bigger than, an, than a modern emperor penguin. And anything in that part of the world that's a penguin that's that tall inevitably puts me in mind of H.P. Lovecraft's classic novella, At the Mountains of Madness, because <laughs> in At the Mountains of Madness, they discover the ruins of a, an ancient dinosaur era civilization that had giant albino penguins uh, <laughs> living uh, alongside it. And the giant albino penguins are still there. And so I uh, any they're like six foot tall. And so this is so close. At, oh, and they're blind because they oh. live in caves. They're like cave fish. So oh. now that they found this five foot tall penguin down in that part of the world, now they just need to keep digging and find the giant blind albino penguins. <laughs> <laughs> but after you find them, don't go further because you do not want to find the Shoggoths. No, <laughs> anything in HP Lovecraft. I have two things to say about this. First, my daughter loves penguins. She's penguin crazy. Um, that's one of the reasons we subtitled our, our uh, my wife and I, our podcast, uh, uh, Tales of Pirates and Penguins. But, uh, but also, um, 
New Zealand seems to be ground zero for like it's got giant penguins, but it also had those those little hobbit people. Remember they found those yeah. out there too. So you would have had well, these actually gi- that was the hobbit the the literal oh. hobbit people Homo florensis is Indonesia. Yeah. Oh right, right, right. I got that. But the the fictional hobbit people were indeed filmed extensively in <laughs> right. uh, in New Zealand. That's right. <laughs> I just I just that the juxtaposition of the giant penguin and the little people. Uh, yeah. All right. So, uh, Jimmy, uh, in a second, I'm going to ask you what our next episode is about. But first, I want to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Gene R., Tony G., Edward R., Derek M., and Steve H. Their generous donations at sqpn.com slash give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. You can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. So, Jimmy, what is our topic next week? Next week, we're going to be talking about the apparition of Our Lady of La Salette. Excellent. Excellent. Look forward to that. So that's it from us. Uh, what do you think about mind-controlling parasites? Uh, do, are they making you listen to the show? Uh, probably not. So let us know. Those, those are the beneficial symbiont parasites. <laughs> symbionts. Exactly. Exactly. So let us know what you think. And if you have any feedback, by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akins Mysterious World Facebook page. And you can also send an email to mysterious at sqpn.com. Or you can send a tweet to at mys underscore world with the hashtag of mysterious feedback, all one word. If you are not subscribed to the show, if you're listening to this on our website or someone sent you a file, be sure to subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, your favorite podcast app, or on YouTube, uh, the SQPN YouTube channel, where you can hit the bell to get notifications. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion and links to the mysterious headlines on our show notes at sqpn.com slash mysterious. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Dom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. <laughs>